Hi everyone, it's Bina007 here for the second part of our And Then There Were None discussion. Just as a reminder, this is going to be full of spoilers and we are going to discuss the characters, the plot and the adaptations. We really hope you enjoy this discussion. Okay, so we're back. The The concept of the novel, which we can now talk about fully, is that the 10 people on the island are all people who are murderers, but who cannot be convicted in a court of law because the evidence is lacking. They are killed one by one, including the two members of the staff, until at the end, one of the women hangs herself in accordance with the nursery rhyme. We discover that the person who is committing all the murders is Mr. Justice Wargrave, a retired criminal judge. He is one of the people who is apparently killed about halfway through the novel, but it is the aforementioned Red Herring. He had teamed up with the doctor to fake his own death and therefore could carry on murdering people and then arranges um, for the final person to die. They all die. There is no uh, redemption arc. There is no escape from this island of death. And finally, he sends his written confession off in a bottle, which is fished up by a fisherman. And that is how we find out what has happened in the epilogue. So there is, although certain of the characters try to detect who's doing the murder, there is no um, resolution. There's no nice bow. There is no one to explain what happened to capture the killer and dispense justice and pat us all on the head. So that is the novel. Do you want to get a little bit into the characters, folks, or do you just want to talk about tone and the concept yeah. and whether you managed to detect it? I, I, the only thing I wanted to add on was when you were talking about Lombard and, and how he wasn't a nice character. I, I just I felt that I, one of the things I took out of this is, is Christie has critiqued the whole of the British establishment in this. There's representatives from the police, the army, you know, they've got a school ma'am here. They've got the elder, as you described it, the elderly pious spinster. They've got a doctor, you know, and every one of them receives criticism, you know. So it's almost like Christie is taking a swipe. And I particularly thought this with the Wargrave, like she was quite savage uh, in the, the sort of the epilogue where Wargrave saying, I like to kill and punish. So the law was perfect for me. And I thought, is Christy taking a swipe here at the sort of the, the treatment she's had at the, Brit the hands of the British legal system herself? Because like she's been quite nasty about um, judges and, and lawyers in the past. Like we were doing the Poirot Christmas one recently and she was talking about how they like to hide behind big flowery words and took great pleasure in trying to confuse people and things like that. And I, I just felt like Agatha's, you know, taking a swipe here. At, at the establishment maybe i'm reading that into it myself but like that's one thing i took out of it that i i thought you know she's on the money with some of the stuff she's saying here so yeah bing how did you Sorry. find it um this is your first novel how how did you find the plot the characters when you read it in middle school did you oh. figure out who was doing it i mean how do oh. you approach it now as a as an older person relative to then i mean right. it must have been quite a mind fuck to read it in middle school i cannot imagine <laughs> Well, back in middle school, I just found, uh, first of all, my reading habits were terrible back in middle school. I would flip back and forth from the book, so I already knew who the murderer was long before I should have. So that, that's a totally different thing. Um, but also, uh, I, I think I liked how neatly, back then, I liked how neatly things wrapped up at the end, and it made sense to me. Now, when I'm sort of reading through the characters, maybe through a little bit more nuance, a little bit. Um, it's interesting what Christie is trying to do here because I'm not, I don't know quite, I'm not exactly quite sure, and I'm not familiar with Christie's rest of the book, so that's my problem here. Uh, but I feel like Christie is either critical of the establishment as a whole or upper society, or he's she's very critical of individuals that pervert the establishment at different levels uh, that causes problems, causes these people to have distrust towards establishment. But there is definitely a very interesting classist angle uh, in trying mm. to understand this book. Well, do you want to go into that a little bit more? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so the, the whole framework, right, it's this 10 individuals all plugged from various different sectors of high society, right? These are judges. Um, what was it? These are judges, doctors. Um, Marston's a young, rich guy with Ferrari. Emily Brent, this head mistress. All these people plugged from high society, sent to an, uh, an island where they're completely separate from the rest of the world, from, from, from the rest of society. And the rest of society just look at them over there and say, these, these crazy people, we have no idea what they're doing. And when they're all killing, when they start killing each other, all the people are still saying, oh, crazy stuff happening over there, right? It's sort of interesting to sort of see the, the, frame, the general framework and see that disconnect, right, from two different sectors of British society. Yeah, I had a slightly different interpretation, maybe okay. more similar to Pat's, cool. which is that it's showing um, all the different strata. Actually, not quite. We, we don't have anyone who's an aristocrat here, which sometimes we do. We get like Lord Edgware dies. We don't actually have any aristos. These people are all mostly middle class. So, okay, you've got the upper middle class, like the doctors and the judges and whatever, and the nice you know, rich spinsters. But then you do also have the working class people. So you've got the two, like the the husband and wife, who were the cooks and the cleaners and the butlers. And you also yeah. have Vera Claythorne, who's the nursery governess, who probably wants to marry the rich guy and become mm -hmm. middle class, but is very much working class at the time. So to me, it's almost even more of a savage indictment because if you think about England, you know, you've got the honest working classes and the toffs at the top, but it's the solid middle class that, you know, the, you know, the common sense middle class, the Daily Mail reading centre, right? socially conservative middle class of England. And it's almost like that's what she's satirizing and condemning of kind of the professional people, like the people who you would think of as being the kind of the stable, solid middle. So it's kind of almost worse. So to me, it's kind of upper middle class down to sort of the servants. You don't really yeah. actually see the top here in this one. But I know what you mean about like, no. there's the people on the shore who all kind of think, what are these people all doing going off to this island and eventually come and clean up the mess, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think also like the, the the crimes that they've committed are are interesting as well because like MacArthur, the retired World War One general, he's guilty of sending guys off to certain death, you know, um, on a whim because he's basically a bit jealous. And, and mm. like I'm sure that happened, you know, like you hear stories from World War One, and like the, the phrase was um, British soldiers were lions led by donkeys because some of the stupidity that took place there, you know, which was like savagely satirised in that Blackadder series, Blackadder goes mm -hmm. forth, you know, right. it, it, the idiocy was unbelievable. So like I, 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 I'm seeing this and thinking, yeah, th th this can happen. And Emily Brent, who was guilty of uh, judging that this young girl in service who got herself pregnant needed to fend for herself and she just cast her out, you know, at the last minute. You know, um, Armstrong, the doctor, who mm. killed a patient because he was drunk. You know, these are all, and, and Bloor, who's basically corrupt. These are all people who, who've, like, they, they've committed these crimes in the course of abusing their positions of power. You know, and, and I don't think, I, these aren't things that I think people would have been surprised to read or even shocked. They wouldn't, wouldn't have read about this and thought, oh my God, a policeman would never take a bribe. This is incredible, you know. I mean, in yeah. some ways, they're quite petty crimes, aren't they? They're quite true trivial in some ways yeah quite yeah typical. i mean some of them incredibly yeah uh, i think you're right i think surprise people which is why it's horrifying because you can imagine it you know <laughs> i mean that's the whole point right why, why these were people who were picked out that these were people who were beyond the, the reach of the law because they're just not quite yeah. horrible enough that where they, they, there's just no laws that yeah. can specifically criminalize well, these people uh, yeah, and in some cases, they just weren't stupid enough to be caught. You know, Bloor committed the crime, but was clever enough to, to cover his tracks, you know, and that, 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 you know, some of them weren't seen as crimes, but others were crimes, but just yeah, the people weren't caught. So. Yeah, and the ordinary everyday. I mean, that's what, what I think is, there's so many things that are unsettling about this book. Um, I was reading a really interesting, um, it's out of print now, but, but by Gillian Gill, which is very interesting on Agatha Christie. And there was another more contemporary essay that was talking about the use of the N-word in the title and the idea that the island is actually called N-word. And then sometimes now it's renamed as Skull Island um, mm. and then became now Soldier Island, I think. And then there were none in contemporary editions. But in yeah. the original day, having that N-word in the title would have made it seem very other and very foreign and very exotic and very sinister and dark and dangerous. 
like playing yeah, well, into all those colonial exotic tropes and that yeah well they, they, they do mention that um i i, I was um I, i've been listening to a few episodes of that all about agatha podcast oh, that that's you a great podcast. The yeah, and they good. they make that same point that the um n-word would have had this uh, suggestion of otherness at the time that mm, you know which is probably why as, she as we yeah when we try and translate this you know and get rid of these racially pejorative connotations that um you, you still need to try and capture that if you can which is why calling yeah. skull island might be a good idea you know rather than just soldier island because you do and want to keep that a little bit yeah. and to me it's the contrast between that and then these people who seem outwardly so respectable you know the doctor and the school teacher and the mm. nursery governess it should all be very wholesome and then it's so sinister when you realize they all have yeah. these well, well, like even that, yeah. that, that, that um, character, Marston, like when mm. I started reading him, I was reminded of Bertie Wooster from P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> you know, racing along in his motor car. Then it comes out he's killed these two kids and pulled some strings with some local friends to get off with a light punishment. And you, you, you're seeing the dark again, you're seeing the dark side of British society at the time. You know, mm. I, I just thought quite, quite disturbing, really, to read. So. Does anyone have anything else to say about specific characters before we get into the technicality? So I, I had a point um, going back to the discussion of, you know, her her views on colonialism um, as characterized by Lombard. Um, the answer to that that I kind of see is most of the time when I'm reading Christie, I can see how the racial slurs and things that are used are... Um, either, you know, casual and contemporary to her time, which if we're going to indict her and lock her work away for that, then we have to throw out Shakespeare and and things that are important. And um, it's maybe not an excuse, but it's something we just sort of have to, you know, we study history not to understand the past. We study it to understand the present. And but a lot of times when I read it, I get the sense that it's very much like if you read Stephen King's The Stand, and the internal monologues of some of the POV characters, they are very nasty. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I think anyone could argue validly that that is a sentiment shared by King himself. Mm -hmm. He's writing these these characters in the context of what is their flaw, not his. Um, and I'm also, I, I get the feeling that with King, he'd, he would even be very uncomfortable as he wrote it, but understanding it's important for the story um to have that you know duality of mankind but i think you can really clue into what agatha's feelings are on it by the fact that the order of their death is an indictment of how egregious their crime was so that, 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 Marston, that's quite an interesting point because i wanted to come to that so yeah mark runs down a couple of kids and is very blasé about it well sucks to be them they shouldn't have been in the road and, and, and but, he's the first yeah, one who is dealt yeah. with by wargrave yeah right so because you know, wargrave sees that there's just an absence of morality in him and that's not really his fault whereas lombard knows exactly what he's doing and he's saved till the very end and and tortured the worst for his mm. crime right so i think that that speaks to the author's views on the weight of these crimes and, and, and what um, did you feel about the ordering of the death and the weight of these crimes do you think she got it right yeah that's a good I, question do we I think that Wargrave got them right yeah yeah that's the that's the answer because the thing is i don't think you're supposed to be sympathetic to any character especially not Wargrave. Wargrave is psycho <laughs> I mean, at first, he's just in the in the in the lower part. He's just some some cold, uncaring dude who might have sentenced a guy who was not guilty to death. Whatever. But in the in the epilogue, he gets he becomes even worse to me because he's an yes. absolute psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so well, the thing is, yeah, but, getting but, it right. I thought Vera Clayson was kind of yeah, harshly treated. Yeah. Like Bing, we've got we've her. got to we've got we've got to we've got to put a footnote on this uh, assessment of Wargrave because he was a respected member of the British ju judiciary. Sure. So. <laughs> I mean, so I think the, the thing is. Go ahead, Bing. Oh yeah, sorry. No, I just I would just point out that the order is what it is because Wargrave had this very warped sense of morality. Um, yeah. That the people who like Marston, uh, who well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, Marston should be much much later on. That guy is heinous. 
but Wargrave's twisted vision of the world. What? It's a young dude under influence. It's the influence's fault, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm glad you've made that point because I was almost thinking when I went through this and I read that epilogue that I was thinking, God, I hope this isn't Christie's order and oh. this is how she assesses these crimes. But you're, also, you, you, yeah. you, 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 you maybe see that a different way. You're saying this is Wargraves. Yeah, yeah, which, I, I, which I, I makes me sleep a little bit easier at night. So I hope that's not how Christie thinks. Yeah. And, okay. I, and I think that we can explicitly see the difference because. The person who Wargrave leaves for last is Vera Claythorne. So that's right. by implication mm. the perfect person that he thinks is the most guilty. And yet when you see the oh. amount of space that Agatha Christie gives to Vera's POV and mm. how sympathetically she portrays her in terms of not that what she did wasn't horrific. To kill a little boy is horrific, an innocent child, just for money, basically, and lust, basically. But mm -hmm. the way she shows Vera being punished by her own conscience, mm -hmm. you know, she's the opposite of psychopathic, right? It was a moment of weakness, but she absolutely is punishing herself and beating herself up to the point where she will hang herself for mm -hmm. having done this. Mm -hmm. I think shows that Agatha Christie thinks she's much more sympathetic than Wargrave. I think Agatha Christie's ordering would be very different. Yeah. I think mm. her. Oh. I think she would have had Lombard um, later. And I also think the way Agatha Christie writes the unfeeling woman who turned away the pregnant servant who later then died would also have been further down the list than Vera Claythorne because she shows no remorse. And mm -hmm. I feel that in Agatha Christie's ordering, whether you have the ability to feel remorse and to have self-awareness about the nature of your crime weighs yeah. with Agatha Christie. She, she, will, she, she, she will let you, or she, she accords sympathy to people who later feel regret. Did you, so that, that was something you took out of this, that Claythorne had regret that yes. she, she was showing remorse rather than it, was, it didn't work and she was sorry that it didn't work. Well, I think it's both. I mean, I think at a more superficial level, she's, you know, the moment she realizes that everyone believes her except for her lover is yeah. is obviously of great yeah, sorry. But I think that but I think there's more going on than just ah, Drad, it didn't work. I mean, I don't think yeah, oh, no. that she's internal monologue and the hat, yeah. yeah, she's absolutely destroyed by it, right? Whereas the prim proper spinster was like, No, I did absolutely the right thing and I yeah, wouldn't die because and, I'm in the right. I mean, she is terrific. She's almost as psychopathic as Justice Wargrave because she genuinely doesn't have yeah. empathy for other human beings. Yeah, and, and, and Wargrave seems to be aware of um Playthorpe sort of mental state as well because he puts that down in his confession at the end doesn't he? he he explains that it was an interesting psychological test to mm -hmm. you know push Clay vera claythorne in the way that he did leaving her until last you know and, mm -hmm. and, and almost leaving the noose there because he knew what she was going to do so yeah no well, I, I can see that she gets it the worst too because she's the only one that directly involved a child mm. so that's always more horrific um, so this is really interesting to me because when i when i read it again for the podcast so this is maybe my fifth time reading it i've always had like a bit of a question mark as far as the rogerses are concerned i've always been really inclined to believe their side of it of sort of like we didn't kill her but maybe we didn't take the greatest care of her either mm -hmm. um however i in advance of this i also watched um there's a mini series done mm -hmm. in 2015 um i think it's a bbc one yeah, but they yeah. so they have flashbacks to the actual crimes and rogers like legitimately murders he smothers her with a pillow and his wife is an accessory sort of after the fact. Um, and Wargrave seems to know that is why she gets it a little bit easier. But that was the first time that I was like, oh, so their blatant take on it is that they're definitely guilty and there is no question mark, which I always thought the point of the story was that the problem with vigilantism is that because there is no burden of proof with a group of your peers to decide you can get it wrong yeah. and yeah as, no I, as I think you're right down yeah. it's still important to follow that set of rules because 
you weren't in the room and this is conjecture and you really don't know unless you get yeah. them to confess that they actually committed this crime these, this way. All these people at Wargrave sentence have all been convicted with hearsay. That's, right. that's basically what they've been yeah. done with. So I, I, I think you're right. right. It's, it's more obvious. And from their own internal monologue, you, you can see that it's more obvious. Okay, they are guilty. But the Rogerses remain a question mark, in my opinion. And even yeah. Marsden, I mean, what he did was horrible and he shows no remorse. But could that not be a way to compartmentalize and live with the horror of what you've done, especially as a young person? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Sure, I, I'm much less sympathetic with Anakin Marston, but the Rogers, I, I, I do. I see yeah, but I, I do think it's a good, it's a good point because I think you can read um, these books in different ways, and I think that that, that like that the point Hannah's made about the Rogers don't get their own internal monologue where we examine the actual events. That that means that's a legitimate interpretation of this book. You know, I mm -hmm. think that's a good way of reading it, definitely. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. if you look at like big contrast to Orient Express, right? They actually form a jury and do have a trial and come to this consensus among themselves. Whereas this is Wargrave being judge, jury, and executioner all at yeah. once. Yeah. And, and the big difference is Orient Express, there's no doubt as to the killer's guilt. Um, Agatha Christie right. is very clear. Whereas here, so like you say, yeah, they got him as. Mm as that does so it's just it's very it's very interesting um and the the other uh point i had just from the from the author's pov is so this is a little over a decade after she has had her fugue state um and so i it struck me for the first time reading this that you could see someone like wargrave as an old man um and one who's dealt with you know several heinous crimes and had to have a lot of experience with psychology and psychoanalysis, he would have sort of that wisdom to be able to do a character study and know what the outcome would be and and sort of move the pieces around the board, have his pawns go where he means them to. Um, but how, how does Christy have that knowledge? And it struck me for the first time. I wonder if she picked up on some of this attention to detail and psychological profiling through her own experiences with therapy in the wake of that. Yeah, and bear in mind that that was court-ordered, right? I mean, her experience right. with the British justice system was pretty brutal in, in terms of trying to keep um, custody of her daughter. So, no, I think that's a very valid interpretation. Okay, so we get the nuance of it's Wargrave's ordering, Christie's may be different. And I think it is interesting that you get this spectrum of people who are very proud of their crimes, see nothing wrong with them, like Lombard to and the spinster to people like the 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 army guy who basically is waiting for death. He feels guilty. He knows it was a moment's weakness and almost welcomes it to Vera, who finally hangs us up. I mean, it's it's an amazing spectrum of reactions to having committed a crime and how you might cope with that psychologically, I find. I, that's one of the things I find really interesting in the book. How did you guys find the technical construction of the book and the plot? Because obviously, you know, she's written, Agatha Christie's written books like Orient Express or Roger Ackroyd that have very technically intricate plots. This is one that's seen as absolutely masterful. Um, in her own um, sort of introduction to the book, she says, I had written the book Ten Little N-Words because it was so difficult to do that, to do that the idea had fascinated me. Ten people had to die without it becoming ridiculous or the murderer being obvious. I wrote the book after a tremendous amount of planning, and I was pleased with what I had made of it. It was clear, straightforward, baffling, and yet had a perfectly reasonable explanation. In fact, it had to have an epilogue in order to explain it. It was well received and reviewed, but the person who was really pleased with it was myself, for I knew better than any critic how difficult it had been. I don't say it is the play or book of mine that I like best, or even that I think it is my best, but I do think in some ways that it is a better piece of craftsmanship than anything else I've written, end quote. How do you guys feel about that? The craftsmanship, the technical skill of putting the plot together. Maybe Bing, how about you? I mean, this is this is the Christie that you know. So yeah. how do you feel about it as a puzzle book? 
I think when I was in middle school, it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, I mean, okay, awesome. Um, but yeah, no, that, that um, I think there's a lot of interesting attention to detail that, uh, and that shows that she really, really sort of fought through a lot of different outcomes. Um, I think on rereads, you, as an adult, you start picking up on some of the parts where she sort of start hand waving, right? Uh, and there's, which honestly, it's, you sort of have to accept in the end. Like there, there are some issues with the, how everything just came together, especially at the very beginning, Isaac Morris, the, 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 the unspeaking of 11th victim, right? Uh, the, how is he so sure that that guy wouldn't just let things slip? Yeah. How is he so sure that he's not going to leave anything behind? He's the, he's the one behind everything. Um, but, uh, but okay, but apparently the guy is a perfect accountant and just keep everything shut until we're with Keldon. Sure. Uh, it's not necessarily a plot hole. It's a lot of hand waving. That's yeah. okay. And so, but overall, I feel like, again, it's, it's, it's still, it has a much greater audience than even maybe her, some of her typical books for a reason. Mm, yeah. How about you, Pat? How do you find the sort of the technical construction of the book? Well, I, like, I, I, I think that one of the reasons why we get away with what, oh, Agatha is getting away with what Bing calls a lot of hand waving is it, when she says craftsmanship, it, this, I think, is probably the best written um, from a technical point of view of the Christie's that I've read so far as part of this reread. It's very tight. There's no flab. She, like you said at the start, she doesn't waste the word. Everything's very punchy. The action is so quick. I don't think you really get time on a first read to spot flaws in in the plot you know it just moves so quickly so from that point of view technically i think it it, it, it's flawless um i'm gonna borrow from the all about agatha podcast though because they were they 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 raised a couple of interesting points and one of the points they made was um dashiell hammett um who's written some great sort of noir books of this sort of genre he he said that it was very good but he did find the one flaw that he thought uh, Christie it meant Christie hadn't quite succeeded as well as she wanted to because uh, you get the impression that Christie is trying to keep us guessing who's responsible right until the very end. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, what he said is, once we hear Vera scream, we know she's not in the room when Wargrave is shot, so it couldn't have been Vera. So we we automatically have one who we know isn't dead yet, but definitely hasn't done it, and that's the only flaw that somebody like Dashiell Hammett, who was a well-respected crime writer at the time he can find so if somebody like him can only find that flaw i think it's mm. probably a testament to just how good the book is um from uh, a sort of technical construction point of view um i mean the one the that other... i raised with you guys is how did she know that there was going to be a storm that would render the island unreachable for a handy two days <laughs> but... well like she, she she doesn't um uh, that that's for me uh, that's almost luck because Wargrave's already briefed all the islanders, not the islanders, sorry, the people in the local port, that they're not to come. It's an experiment that's being conducted um, and they're to leave them all alone. And it, like the only person who actually breaks that um, that order is Fred Narricutt. And, and he, he does it at the earliest opportunity, but only because local scout group have got concerned with the messages that are being sent from the island. But like... Mm. Wargrave explains in the end, like he's already told all the, the people in the local village to ignore any messages that come from the island because it is a, a social experiment that's been conducted for a week. So I, I get the feeling. The storm. the storm was just for added atmosphere and gothic drama, basically. Well, it, it, like it, 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 it added, but um, they did this on the All About Agatha podcast. And one of the, the, um, the hosts um, flagged up a, a series of problems she had with the, the, the way it was technically carried out and as i was listening to them all i thought well they're all good points but um wargrave has planned them all and okay it's unlikely that they would all come off but in this situation they have you know yeah. and, and sometimes that happens you know sometimes yeah. you, you take a million to one punt and it it works you know so mm. I, I i thought technically from that that point of view it was it was quite good the other point that they made which i thought was interesting and it sort of shed new light on the way i've been reading christie's because I'd not summed the books up this way, is they said, like, broadly speaking, Agatha writes two types of books for them. She writes puzzle books, which is what I think you referred to this as. Um, and these are the ones where she drops loads of clues and you're supposed to figure out who's done it before the end. And then she writes thrillers, like the um, Tommy Atopitz novels, where, you know, they're just action romps. But th this one was very different. It was m much more noir. Um, I, and this again, one's a good I, 
of yeah, the two. I don't think, yeah, I don't think this I is... I think it's uh, everything, actually. I think yeah. what makes this fascinating to me is it's a puzzle. It's an intricate puzzle novel, like Orient Express or um, Roger Ackroyd. It's also, I think, genuinely a thriller. And you get that in that 2015 adaptation because you've got these men of action bounding around the island trying to figure out who did it. There's a gun. There are elements of thriller that come through. It's also it a gothic the... noir. Yeah, but it you doesn't know, have the, um, the, 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 the comedy elements that these more light-hearted thrillers that Christie's written do have. You know, it, no, no, it but is she does so write, I mean, we probably, we haven't done them yet, really, but that she does write very straightforward thrillers and this, and yeah. maybe we get into that as we get into World War II. Well, well, the other thing that they, that they flagged up on the podcast, which I thought was, was quite interesting as, as well, is Wargrave says that, um, you know, you, you could have figured this out at the end with the three clues I've given you. And one of these was the Mark of Cain. And I'm like, who the hell is going to get the Mark of Cain? You know, that, that's... Yeah, but you just have to remember... Just because Warbrave the blood spot on his no, forehead. No, 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 Everybody knows that Warbrave's the, the guy who's responsible. That's, that's an impossible clue for a contemporary audience to get, because we're not religious. But think about the reader in 1939. Think about how religious, how Anglican, how, how you know, percentage of people going to a church service every Sunday morning. Look at those, look at those sociological surveys of England and America at the time, particularly England actually um i think that was a legitimate clue for the contemporary reader if not now i, I yeah I, 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 I maybe for agatha's audience and maybe for agatha but like i certainly haven't spoken to my grandparents you know like working class people from yeah. from that day i don't think they would necessarily have got the mark of cain uh i, I also too obscure i think everything so. in the epilogue by wargrave to be wargrave's own psychotic rambling <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of describing it brilliant uh and the and the Marco Painter so how up his own ass he is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. So I, uh, as far as this, you know, being always asked the question, does this play fair? And in my natural inclination is to sort of say no. Um, but in a sense, it does, because one big clue is that, well, how did we not hear the shot? There is no shot. Yeah, and I think it does play as, fair, and also because you're on the lookout for the red herring. So right. I actually, well, this is the very, this is one of the very few Agatha Christie's that I did deduce when I read it, and I deduced that Wargrave wasn't dead, and that, that it was Wargrave he did it. Um, so I, from that perspective, I would say it does play fair because of the shot, one... and yeah, and because it's a judge. <laughs> One thing that I think was sort of mad, not, I didn't catch it the first time I read it and probably not even the second, but by the third, one thing that always is sort of maddening to me about this whole thing is, especially when you get to, you know, down to seven little soldiers is um, at that point, and in the in the 2015 adaptation, they do, Vera is very hot on the trail um, and they're sort of not listening to her. Uh, in fact, Armstrong at one point calls her hysterical. Um, they're not really like referencing the poem and then looking out for that next thing, you know, and I, I would have definitely by number two or three been like, okay, well, nobody go out to chop firewood then. Yes. And yeah, definitely. Not, they're not as heavily on the poem as I think a group of people who are arguably somewhat fairly well educated and now on a heightened sense of alert. I mean, at one point they even say forewarned is forearmed and mm -hmm. they're not used to the poem. I mean, I would be walking around with a copy of it and avoiding these situations, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I think the one thing from that, though, it is like, what I noticed on the reread was like Wargrave takes control of the group very early on and starts steering them, doesn't he? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it would have taken quite a strong personality to go against him. Yeah, you know? yeah and I'm sure you would have been that person, Hannah, but you know, and the authority of being a judge, I think you can't underestimate just how much how deferential, especially in those days, people would be to someone in authority. Right. Um, and right. he is an actual These people are all strong people, they're strong enough to commit murders or at least. Well, I mean, enough to commit murder. I mean, I isn't it weakness so. as a major who makes who gives an order to kill a love rival? I mean, that to me is a moment of weakness. It's not a moment of strength. Yeah, I think the thing about Wargrave is that uh, he comes across not only as authoritative but as incredibly smart. Uh, and I think mm. like 
for example, Armstrong. Why did Armstrong trust Wargrave uh, to yeah. become his accomplice? Because Wargrave yeah. is not I, I, only I, I, in I, the good. He spoke. He speaks well. He's intelligent. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, and, and Wargrave actually says in his confession, doesn't he? Like, um, yeah. I picked Armstrong because I thought he was uh, an impressionable coward. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so he, he 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 knows who to play on as well so yeah i think this is a book as much about psychology as about this oh absolutely absolutely and i think agatha christie as much as she's about technical plotting yeah is often far more about psychology i mean orange express is very much about psychology and i think that why this book lasts and why it is still like one of the best-selling novels even in yeah. our time, it's because I, it, it, it's not just because it's technically brilliant, it's because people find the setting gets to them, it's eerie, but also the psychology is fascinating. Who crumbles? Who doesn't crumble? How do you trust one another in this environment? Is it I, that you navigate, you kind of orient yourself towards Justice Wargrave because it's a relief that in this chaos that someone's taking charge and that you're willing to give up and just say, yes, you tell me what to think and do now because, my God, isn't it a relief that there's some order among the chaos? So, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, and the other thing as well is uh, out of the cast on the island, the person who actually figures out who, that it is Wargrave is Lombard when he, mm. he says to Vera, "I think it's I think it's Wargrave," and he he explains it because of psychology. It's quite yeah. simple. He said he's a judge. He's used to passing judgments on people and exacting justice, and that's what's going on in this situation. You know, yeah. it's all down to figuring it out from the psychology. Like Agatha tells us halfway through the book, who's done it? You know, in the voice of Lombard. You know, it's just that we get pulled off on other 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 trails partway through. So, yeah, the Agreed. psychological aspect is definitely important. By the time you get to the epilogue, you kind of see that Wargrave is sort of the uh, unnatural, uh, like, Mr. Hyde to Poirot's Dr. Jekyll. You know, he's Great also important. Yeah. Sells yeah. um, evil and not good, you know. Yeah, yeah. If this was Star Trek, he would be from the mirror universe. He would be the mirror universe Poirot, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, Poirot definitely doesn't like d- murder, and this guy definitely does. Um, what do you guys have? Anything you want to talk about that isn't to do with the adaptations? Um, no, I think I've, I've covered. I've covered everything I've got. What would be your guys' order? I guess just be curious, out of curiosity. Um, I, I, I think that's a loaded question. And I, I think it's going to be a brave person who would answer it. I, I will say this. I think MacArthur should have been left later because I'm sure when he sent his love rival to his certain death on that last gasp mission, it wasn't just his love rival who was condemned to death, but other men were sent out with him. Yeah. And I, I think he, he's only feeling guilty about one death, but I'm sure there were more. Um, so I think he should have been higher on the list. My yeah, order would have been work first and Wargrave last. <laughs> I would put Wargrave much higher up. <laughs> Again, the the guy the guy to me is a psychopath. Uh, and sure, the people he's killing are way, as far as we understand, all evil. That doesn't give you the right to, to, to be the one to do this. Um, <laughs> exactly. Especially somebody from his position who should absolutely know that. Um, I mean, I feel like the one person I really, really own, the only person I really sympathize with was Ethel Rogers, the wife. Because yeah. we just didn't yeah. see anything from her perspective. And she very well, like this, this I think that the series, the TV series adaptation made it more blatant. But, uh, but that was a liberty. Novel, I mean, well, let's save like, it for the adaptation discussion. Right. We'll get into that, yeah. right? But like, in, even in the novel, like you feel like she isn't the one who she she's she has not no the real one agency. Yeah, yeah, she's just an accomplice. Um, okay, so before we get into adaptations, I do want to talk about the fact that this book itself is, in some ways, an adaptation. Although we're not sure if Agatha Christie was aware of the fact that this plot concept had been used before. There was a 1913 novel called The Invisible Host by Gwen Bristow and Bruce Manning, which has a plot that very strongly resembles this one. And it was adapted into a Broadway play. There's no evidence that Christie saw the play or read all the film that was produced on the back of it, but it is incredibly similar. The one that I cannot imagine she wasn't aware of is the Sherlock Holmes um Study in Scarlet, which also became a film in 1933, which includes a scene where Holmes is shown a card with a hint, six little Indians, and does the bee stung one, and then there were five. Um, in this case, the rhyme refers to, quote, and this is fat, fat phobic, ten little fat boys, wonderful. So the, the film plot doesn't really resemble it, but certainly the use of the nursery rhyme. I really wonder if she got the nursery rhyme idea from that. Um, but there we go. Anyway. 
let's get into the adaptations. So this is the novel that has had to date more adaptations than any other, which isn't surprising considering it's the most popular. Um, it was received well as a novel, but as the war continued and morale was bleak, it was felt that people could not cope with the nihilism of the ending of the original novel. So Agatha Christie herself changed the ending for the stage adaptation in 1943. And in that adaptation, she has Lombard and Vera Claythorne fall in love with each other and outwit Justice Wargrave and end happily. Yikes. So yeah, yeah. so <laughs> Pat, that's your ray of uh, ray of sunshine. Yeah, no, I, 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 as much as I, 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 I felt uncomfortable with the book because it's dark. I think the um, and then there were none with a happy ending is possibly even worse because <laughs> 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 it, it just destroys the whole um, concept behind yeah. behind the book. So, so uh, yeah, it's it's pretty, but I think it tells you a lot about the war and what people could take in a time of war. I think, yeah. you know, we have the privilege of saying, yes, I can read this bleak book because, you know, um, I'm not having to face it in daily life. Yeah. The first film was was shot in 90, or released in 1945. It was called And Then There Were None. It was um, directed by René Clair, an American film uh, director. It has the same ending as the play. Um, some characters have different names. Sadly, I think Vera has a different motive because I think the, the Vera story is one of the more interesting ones. But it's kind of broadly faithful. Um, you can watch it on Amazon Prime Video. You can rent it for a few dollars if you want to see it. Um, it does have quite a cool shooting style. There's lots of sort of keyhole shots and telescopes. It is quite creepy and spooky, especially towards the end. Very good expressive lighting, but it is the play ending. So it does end very happily, but I would genuinely recommend it. Has anyone else seen that? It's nope. probably, it's quite a famous one. It's actually, I think it's legitimately worth seeing. The next big movie adaptation, and by the way, there were TV ones in, in the middle of this, but I'm just focusing on the films. There's a there's a TV version filmed in 1965, which was a British film. And even though the, the book is still being published with the original title, the film was called Ten Little Indians, interestingly, directed by George Pollock and produced by Harry Allen Towers. Pollock had previously done the four Miss Marple film starring Margaret Rutherford, so he was known for, for doing um, sort of Agatha Christie. Weirdly, they set this up a mountain retreat in Austria. And I was watching this, um, my husband was in the room, and it felt like watching a jaunty Christmas movie because it's got this really kind of fun jazz score it feels like a sort of Pink Panther film and they're all in fluffy jumpers going up a mountain it's absolutely hilarious and the tone is completely bizarrely jaunty it has got a whodunit break so just before the the reveal the big reveal at the end the film literally breaks off for a whodunit break where they recap um the suspects to date and literally have a little clock ticker counting down 60 seconds for you to chat with your fellow audience members in the cinema about who you think did it, which is just hilarious. And it also has the thing of the play. And you can also rent that on Amazon Prime Video. I think it's like, it's insane, but it's quite good fun. <laughs> and modern cinematic storytelling has lost this art. Now we don't get this anymore. What, the whodunit break? Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I think the one that's probably more well-known, I'd be interested to see if any of you have watched this one, is the 1974 film called And Then There Were None, which I think is the first film I watched of this. It's the first colour version of the film. It was directed by Peter Collinson, who also directed The Italian Job. So this is like, you know, a very major director. Also produced by Harry Allen Towers. And this, rather than being set up um, a mountain in the Austrian Alps, is set in a hotel in the Iranian desert. And it's kind of worth watching because if you've not been able to, as most people can't, travel to Persepolis and you want to see some of the phenomenal monuments in Iran, it really is lavishly filmed. It's got an absolutely crazy cast. It's got Charles Aznavour, who sings a romantic ballad. It's got Oliver Reed as Lombard. It's got Richard Attenborough as Justice Wargrave. It got, it's got Herbert Lominet and the person doing the voice on the gramophone record is Orson Welles. And that's wow. very widely available. So definitely worth watching. I mean, Oliver Reed is so sinister, just so perfectly cast, um, but also has the ending um, of like so far, they've all done basically the play ending rather than the book, which is, I guess, interesting of itself. And have you seen that one? I no, uh, I'm intrigued by the cast, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just legitimately worth watching, and the setting in Iran is 
I'm very, very, I mean, it's stunning and just, you know, no one gets permission to film there now. So it's kind of, it's, it's one of a kind. I'm guessing that the one that a lot of us have seen is the 2015 BBC serial. This was a major big deal when it came out. And then there were none. It was, it came out over Christmas and New Year. It was big sort of event TV. It was the first one that was really following the original plot. It deliberately had a very sinister background and story to it. It shows a lot of the backstories to the murders because it's a serial. It has the time to do that. And it was adapted by Sarah Phelps, who also did the recent ABC murders. What do you guys think of this one, those of you who've seen it? Well, half the cast from Game of Thrones, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Uh, we are, after all, vassals of King's Grace. So yeah, <laughs> if you want to see Charles Dance now playing George Wargrave, uh, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Here, here's a question hard, for you. Right? Who's worse, uh, Tywin Lannister or George Wargrave? Tywin Lannister. Oh, <laughs> oh, I think Wargrave. I mean, so it's, it, it's definitely Tywin Lannister, given that he's... I think it's Tywin Lannister. Fast, he's got, he's got a lot of damn yeah. on global society. Right. Wargrave just killed 10 people in the end, at the end of the day. And it's so. interesting, isn't it? Because for us as Game of Thrones fans, he's obviously the big draw towards it. But at the time, what you have to remember is our little elven friend uh, playing Lombard was just coming off his success in Poldark. So he was very much the housewife's uh, voice at the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a very mm -hmm. famous shot in the third episode where he comes out of the shower in a very low-slung towel and it's got the heartbeat, a pacing of the entire British female public, apparently. Mm -hmm. So that, I think I think he was probably like the big the big star to be in it, even more. So Aiden Turner, right? Aiden Turner, yeah. This must have been, I think, before he was in the Hobbit. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, actually, no. That should be close Hobbit. Well, maybe. Uh, uh, yeah. All these guys are famous, right? It's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's got. It's got. Uh, and Neil. Miranda Richardson. <laughs> it's yeah. Charles Dance, of course. Uh, Brent Gorman, Mister. Uh, uh, what was it? I forgot his famous line, Game of Thrones. Uh, the I, the Lord, absolutely all the weird characters from season three are here. <laughs> yeah, Noah Taylor and 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 Vern Gorman. But it's lovely insofar as it puts it back on an island off the coast of England. Right. It does have the storm. It feels very dark and grim. And apparently, like, because it's quite interesting when you read the novel. Agatha Christie is very particular that this is a very modern house. It's not a crusty old sort yeah. of country house. It has been modernized. And although it didn't look that modern to me when I was watching it, apparently the production designers really took the attention to detail and went back to who were the famous interior designers of 1939 and tried to sort of recreate that look so it really was sort of no expense spared i think it really gets the sinister atmosphere and i really really like this adaptation and i think charles I, dance perfect as justice Walker. yeah dance, dance, dance was awesome uh i think yeah very well acted uh i feel like so i i also agree that the 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 the, the they got the designs perfect i really like the, the, the imperialism that just oozes out of from this house uh, <laughs> right, the, 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 the weird Chinese gong that they always use. Yes, yes. Um, the various different sort of weird furnitures all across the house, all that. That's great. Um, I think this class, I mean, the, unlike Afghan Christie, the people making this series, it's a blatant, it, it can be much more explicit in the criticism of colonialism, all that uh, stuff. I do think the they made the story a little bit less nuanced. Um, like, I think it was mentioned earlier, I forgot it was Pat or, or Hannah mentioned this, the, but uh, the, the, they just show Rogers straight up smothering the old lady rather than just, you know, not yeah, caring that's for a shame. very well. That's a shame, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's hard to do that in TV. Uh, but yeah, for, for a lot of them, it's just much more straightforward about what these people did. So it's, like, it's straight up murder. Uh, mm. and, uh, and, and, and with the general as well, he just straight up pointed a gun apparently at his second command and shot him. <laughs> Which, okay. <laughs> How did he get it with that back then? World War One. But yeah, I. But I think I like that they show that all these people are not good people, and I think that's the that's the point you really need. that's that's getting the the original theme of the story right. And actually, one of the things I mean, I know they did it for crass commercial reasons, like having the little lusty moment between Vera and Lombard, and the, the sort of like you know the shirt off um, was probably for, for just getting views and and kind of social media buzz. But I like the idea of showing Vera as someone who is lustful because that is the root cause of her criminality. And I think in the book, it's almost like Agatha Christie maybe goes too far the other way in making her sympathetic and regretful. But actually, just showing that it wasn't a one-off. 
like when she's teaming up with Lombard, there is an element there that you can see how she would have got into the situation that the eve, you know, the the sort of the tendency towards being selfish and self-interested is there. I kind of really like the way they do Vera here. Um but yeah, there are there are changes. And obviously, I quite like, you know, we're Game of Thrones people. We can get into like books versus show, right? That huge debate. But it is interesting that Agatha Christie made the biggest change of all to her own book for the stage adaptation. And she, in general, had quite a good attitude towards these adaptations that they are their own thing. So I think you kind of got to let it go. I think it stands well on its own, though. I really like this. This is one of my, it's one of the only ones of the Seraphops that I really do like. Um, <laughs> I also like the coke scene with the, the one where she was just doing drugs or doing cocaine. Yeah. It feels like something that these people would do in, in such a circumstance. When things There's a lot of cocaine in Agatha Christie novels, right? There are a lot of drugs. Oh, yeah. I mean, go read Carol and House. Historically I mean, accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was a different time. Well, maybe it wasn't actually. <laughs> Everybody's doing cocaine. Um, anything anyone else wants to say about anything else? Uh, can novels? I just add a little bit? Uh, yeah, please This book is incredibly popular in Japan for some reason. Um, it has also been adapted into a TV series, which I saw a little bit of, with Sushite Dalemo Inakunata, which is a straight translation of the title, uh, which uh, they actually, interesting, they start out with the police officers that at the end coming over to see 10 dead bodies. <laughs> Uh, and then trying to unravel what happened. So uh, that, that show actually came out later in the BBC. It was 2017. Um, so I, I don't know if you can find a sub-version of this anywhere, but it's not bad. Also, Christie's yeah, uh, quite popular um, in, in yeah. Japan as well. I've been reading that um, there's been quite a few of the Poirots have been very popular in Japan. That's true. That's true. In the last 10 uh, years or so as well. So. Also, maybe even a bigger uh, impact culturally in Japan of this book specifically, uh, the name Yuen Owen, uh, which is what Wargrave uses as the disguise of the person inviting everyone, i.e. unknown. Uh, that name was then later used by the maker of the video game Toho Project, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is this, weird, this uh, side-scrolling shooter game that is Bond, its own massive franchise, um, including music, all sorts of all fun, lots of lots of stuff. But uh, you, the, the the name Unon is sort of a, uh, one of the central themes in that uh, franchise. And also, finally, there's also a very famous uh, anime slash game series called uh, When They Cry, uh, which is also sort of a mystery series. Uh, and this one is specifically called Neko when. Uh, when they cry, so sort of the when the black cats cry or whatever, in which but it's wow. a very similar, very similar uh, sort of uh, setting in which a bunch of people gets locked up in an island and they have to sort of solve a bunch of murders before everyone dies. I will try and check those out, or at least yeah. Uh, try. So you know how uh, I can't remember which one it is, but Provo says something in a previous book about you know well what if there was a murder and you know you were locked in the room with him and alluding to cards on the table right mm -hmm. there is a lot early on fairly early on in this book i won't say what it is but it is sort of a it's the equivalent of that to crooked house yeah and when we get do you know what i'm talking about Vina? when we get to crooked I house i'll say what i do i do we, we must for, yeah <laughs> i love that book but Crooked house, uh, yeah so hopefully you all in, enjoyed i don't know if that's the right word this discussion of and then there were none um hopefully it provoked you to think deeply about social attitudes racial attitudes um we would if you haven't read it and have listened anyway please i would encourage you to read this book it really is an absolute it's so unique and so strange even within the context of christie's own earth um the next book that we will be covering in the reread is um ver a very different beast it is um sad cypress which was also published in 1940 and it's a i think a really fascinating um yeah really fascinating Hercule poirot mystery maybe more conventional in part of Agatha Christie's works and maybe um, still quite dark, I think, but maybe not quite as dark as this one. So a bit of a bit of relief after this. Um, but thank you for joining Hannah and Bing and Pat, because this was a really great discussion. As always, thank you for putting it together. Yeah, thank you for allowing Just me to so interlope. Yeah. Oh, Thanks that's okay, much. Bing. If there are any others that you love and you want to jump on for, do, because it was really cool. Yeah, it's been time. great having you on, Bing. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah.
definitely, you know, check out Crooked House, check out Endless Night and join us for those. I, I really think you'll enjoy them if you're not a fan of the straightforward Perros or the Marbles. Yeah, honestly, They're mate, a- if you love this and it blew your mind, you should, when we get there, please try and join us for Crooked House. Just try and grab a copy and have a read. I think you'll love it. We'll see you by and, the time. Endless yeah. night is the <laughs> No pressure. No, no pressure. Endless <laughs> Night is the most different one. It's, it's like... If you didn't know better, you'd think somebody else entirely wrote it. Yeah. And it's quite something. Okay. Great. Thanks very much, guys. I'm going to duck out. Me too. But have a good evening, guys. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.